At the Commonwealth Policy Foundation, we try to approach the issues of life, marriage, religious liberty, and fiscal integrity from a biblical perspective that promotes thoughtfulness and kindness. We work with political leaders and concerned citizens from all across the state. To stay informed, visit CommonwealthMatters.org and sign up for our e-newsletter. The Commonwealth Policy Foundation is a nonprofit organization that only exists because of friends like you. Thanks for tuning in to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Policy Center. Earlier this summer, the Southern Baptist Convention addressed sexual abuse allegations after Guidepost Solutions released a 288-page report. It was a thorough investigation and made a clear presentation. But some say that the recommendations are untenable and even unbiblical. Joining us today is Commonwealth Policy Center's board president, Brian Schutte. Brian, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Richard. Brian, I'll say this at the outset to give some context to our conversation. Uh, Many of our listeners and viewers might not be aware that you are an attorney, and you have worked with churches uh, not just in Kentucky but across the nation in the area of um, church law, church governing documents, policies and procedures that um, protect uh, the church's integrity. So I want to say that at the outset to um, kind of to let everybody know, to temper the conversation, but to let them know that I'm not just speaking to somebody I found on the street the other day. So it, it is good to have you with us. So, so Brian, when I first read that uh, the, the Guidepost Solutions report, and I just I looked at the, uh, the the main takeaways. It was their summary findings. I was shocked. Uh, in fact, I did a program here on the Commonwealth Matters with another pastor where we unpacked some of those summary findings, and there there were several troubling things there. But uh, after you read the entire report, uh, and there's a lot, it's almost 300 pages, you find that some, some of what was said has been maybe misused, twisted in a way that makes it seem like there is widespread abuse and cover-up uh, within Southern Baptist Convention churches, the systemic widespread abuse. And that's really not the case. You'd pointed out something uh, those reports were compiled since 2007, so 15 years of reports, but there were only nine alleged abusers out of over 700 cases that remain in active ministry or they're connected to active ministry, and only two were connected to Southern Baptist Convention churches. That puts it into perspective, doesn't it? certainly does. Uh, that, uh, that is a, you know, one is serious. Uh, but that's certainly not a systemic crisis. And I and I do need to say too that uh, I do not want to minimize those um, women who have been abused. I do not want to minimize the seriousness of this to the church. Uh, and and the bottom line is that the church should be a place of refuge and hope, a place that's safe, uh, a, a place of healing for people who. Uh, have 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 been hurt in their lives, and anytime we see something like this, we should be concerned, and um, but also not just take charges uh, at face value and say that that's it. It's easy for people to make charges, uh, and especially in this day and age, Brian, when the church is perhaps the conservative church is perhaps the last institution in our culture that is uh, holding to the idea of um, objective, absolute truth the idea that there are moral boundaries in society. 
and uh, the, those on the left, um, you and I are, are Christians. We believe that there's a spiritual element to this, and uh, you know there there is a very real attack that's been happening then um, directed towards uh, towards the church. So, so Brian, I want to go into some of the actions that the Southern Baptist Convention took at its annual meeting recently. They did vote to issue a formal apology to those who were victimized by the leadership. That was uh, passed by a wide margin. Um, they also voted to create a offender registry. And the, the term or the, the standard that they use is credibly accused. Let's talk about that. For, first of all, should there have been a registry created by the Southern Baptist Convention? Should they have compiled a registry? I think there's a lot of merit to the idea of having a registry. And and I don't I don't think those who oppose the registry oppose it on uh, as I oppose it in the way that it was put together oppose it because of the concept of a registry. I think they oppose it because of the standard uh not being a biblical standard for actually putting somebody's name on that list. So this the standard is uh credibly accused. I mean, so if somebody, if it sounds like it's a credible accusation, I mean, you, you could end up on that. Uh, somebody in involved with the church, deacon, pastor, Sunday school teacher could end up on the list. What is the biblical standard when you're dealing with a, an issue like this? Second uh, Corinthians 13, 1, mm-hmm. uh, it, it states that um, every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses, uh, which is a recitation. Uh, of a of the a biblical standard set out in Deuteronomy 19, and I, you know I don't think we need to apply that sort of thing in a mechanical way, but the principle there is you don't generally accept uh, the statement of a single individual without any sort of corroboration, and uh, you know that's not that's not a human standard, that's a biblical standard, and elsewhere in the New Testament says don't don't receive an allegation against an elder except on the testimony of two or more witnesses. So that, that's a very clearly articulated standard, and I think the idea is a recognition of fallen human nature and that there are people who, for whatever reason, make uh, false allegations of, of harm or abuse. And when that happens, you know, the, uh, there should be some protections in place to kind of filter those things out. Brian, that's a good point, because uh, as we talk about um, issues like this on the Commonwealth Matters, the, uh, we, we address the issues from a biblical worldview, and we look to specific biblical passages to speak to how should we think through or how should we act in, uh, uh, in, in certain areas. What do you do, though? I want to I press into that a little bit, and uh, let's say a child is abused, or whoever it might be, and there wasn't anybody present. Uh, there, there wasn't um, another witness, and that does happen, unfortunately. But I'm wondering what is the what is the way when it seems like there might be a legitimate accusation? What would be the next step, if you will? Well, it, I've always construed the notion of two or more witnesses more broadly than just saying, "Well, there have to be two people that come forward and give a firsthand account." I think that that would be an improper reading of it. Um, I, but I think you look for other corroboration, whether it's circumstantial, um, 
it, you have to be careful with it, but there can also be behavioral corroboration. And, you know, I think the, the, the understanding of how abuse impacts people is sufficiently well-developed uh, that we can find some corroboration, you know, if, if we're diligent to look for it. But, but there may be times when we can't meet the biblical standard of justice for discipline. And that's part of the reason why essentially all the recommendations that you hear from anybody that speaks to this issue is you avoid having a, 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 a one, a, one adult with a child in a one-on-one -on -one situation for this very reason, because you end up with a really, a, as a lawyer, I'd call it an evidentiary problem. You don't have enough evidence to meet the standard. And so it's best to simply avoid it. So it never, you never have to confront it. Sure. With, uh, to add to that, Brian, uh, with modern technology, DNA could be considered an evidence. The DNA that we have, uh, that we carry with us is unique. And that could be perhaps that is introducible in the court of law with video testimony, audio testimony, that perhaps those could be considered, I'm thinking in broad terms as well, to, to convict or to confirm somebody's ac accusations. Yeah. And, and I think, Again, in keeping with the idea that the testimony of two or three witnesses is a principle and not something to be, uh, you know, applied with excessive exactness, DNA is generally a sufficient single voice, so to speak, you know, to bring a conviction. In fact, you know, we're seeing a, an age of accountability because of technology where they're solving 30 and 40 year old crimes because they've gone back and tested DNA. And they, you know, maybe find somebody that's been leading a quiet life for the past 30 or 40 years, but they committed a crime. And so that there, there's the possibility of bringing accountability to it. I would also say on the technology side, in any areas where you have children, uh, whenever it's at all appropriate, you can put cameras up there. I mean, webcams are very inexpensive. It's not expensive to, to stream that and then to store that uh, that uh, footage, you know, somewhere on a hard drive or in the cloud, and that really protects everybody concerned. So, so there, there are plenty of measures available um, that get us past this, this problem of requiring uh, reasonable evidence before we accuse somebody. Brian, uh, the number one reason that churches are sued is due to sexual abuse. And of course, when you think of um, sexual abuse scandals, you think of the Catholic Church. Uh, by the way, they have... Um, They've paid out an estimated $3.2 billion to settle um, various cases. Uh, and that's according to their own website, bishopaccountability.org. Uh, do you see this in the future for the Southern Baptist Convention? Is this something where the SBC is moving towards where, because let me take a step back. Uh, there was a proposal to create a fund that would um, allow an agency within the SBC to investigate uh, the claims of abuse, to compile the names of alleged abusers, uh, and and uh, there's talk of having a fund to pay out or to possibly in the future to have a fund to pay victims of abuse within Southern Baptist Convention churches. Is is this the same thing, or is this apples and oranges? Is this similar to the, what the Catholic Church dealt with? No, it's not. It's not materially similar, and the reason why is the Catholic Church is explicitly uh, a hierarchical church. There is authority that, uh, you know, goes down from the Pope down to your local parish priest, 
And so it, it, they general, uh, genuinely are a part of a singular uh, enterprise, if you will. And if you think of it in terms of an organization being responsible for the actions of its employees, uh, it is as though they're all, those are all employees. So, so the, the company, so to speak, is going to be responsible. Uh, and as all the SBC listeners to, to this will, will know, that's not a description of, of the Southern Baptist Convention. Really, the Southern Baptist Convention is a consortium uh, or a cooperative association of independent churches that are fiercely independent, I would add, but they pool resources for some, uh, some common goals, uh, primarily missions uh, and education. And so, you know, to, to then take that and turn that, say that, well, that makes you just like a hierarchical church, um, it isn't an intellectually honest assertion. And, uh, and it, it just, it, it would be uh, an even greater injustice to do that. By the way, Brian, when I was doing a little research for this program, I did notice that there is a law firm that's advertising out there. Apparently, they have a intake form asking if somebody has been abused in an SBC church, and they're trying to collect a list of names. Uh, it looks, It's looking like a class action lawsuit. And I don't know if this is dependent on what the SBC does next year, but um, there is, it looks like there's a lawsuit in the works anyway. Maybe there's several legal firms looking to sue the SBC? You can be assured that there are. I, I saw one from a law firm in Pensacola, Florida, uh, a, a prominent uh, firm, actually, the, and they're, they're trying to recruit plaintiffs. And, you know, the problem with the idea of, an, of, a, of a class action lawsuit is it, it, would, it would fail to appreciate the, the, the actual legal relationship between uh, SBC entities like the executive committee and the individual churches. And, you know, what they're trying to do, and I think the, guide, uh, the guidepost report does this, is, is to conflate independent, you know, churches that are completely self-governed with these cooperative organizations uh, like the executive committee and put those all into the same, uh, into the same bucket. And that that's not a sound legal analysis. But if if the SBC and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna say is foolish enough to adopt uh, the recommendation to establish a survivor compensation fund program, uh, that that's what that's the way the language that they use. One of the the points of that uh, recommendation is that it be funded with quote cooperative program dollars. Uh, which means donations from churches, which are are you know tithes and offerings from uh, believers who are members or attenders of those churches, and selling of SBC assets as prioritized by the executive committee. And what I what I would characterize that as is organizational suicide. Look at look at what's happened to the Boy Scouts. Now uh, the they I don't think had a choice but to go down that road. But the SBC does, and and I, I genuinely believe that if the SBC adopts substantially the 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 recommendations of this guidepost report, it's certainly going to be the end of the SBC as we know it, uh, and whatever is surviving in the wake of such a destructive decision um, will bear a faint resemblance to what we presently have. 
Ryan, I did not pay close attention to the SBC annual meeting, but was there any kind of support for that, creating a victim's uh, survivor's fund? I, I know that it, it, it did not pass, uh, yeah. I think, but yeah. I think there are still, certainly there are those who are, are either themselves activists or who are actively sympathetic with activists who support that sort of approach. And you know that's a that's a whole other set of issues uh, to try to figure out why that's the case. But uh, it it's not here yet, and uh, I'd like to believe that it's not likely that they would do something as unwise as that. But I, I suppose we'll see. I've had a pastor on this program who said that if that happens, if they create something like that victim survivor fund, they're going to leave. They can. There is a new church plant. And they don't want to see their resources going to pay out the, for the mistakes of the executive committee of the SBC. So, so I think to your point, you're going to see a lot of churches leave if if it if it moves in that direction. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson here with Brian Schutte, and we're talking about the uh, SBC Guidepost report. Stick with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far-left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So if you're looking for a perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at CommonwealthPolicyCenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. And we're on Twitter at cpc for kentucky Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson here with Brian Schutte, and we are talking in this segment about how churches can be proactive and protect them from and their congregations from having a sexual abuse scandal uh, in within their uh, within their congregation. Brian, you have worked with churches across the Commonwealth and across the nation, helping them really to put together policies that. Um, just really create a, a, the the guidelines or the, um, the 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 rules for having a healthy church environment, and you can't do that perfectly. We live in a fallen world, and there's fallen people in the church. But I want to start with this: um, what would be your recommendation as far as policies or governing documents? What would you say churches? Where do they start with that? Should they have something in their documents that would address? allegations of abuse? Uh, Yes, I I think it's a good idea to have that. There's something more fundamental, though, in terms of a a recommendation. You know, a healthy church starts with being a church that is constructed in a biblically sound manner. And that that means following, you know, uh, New Testament guidance on the selection of leaders and and, uh, uh, within broad parameters uh, the configuration of the of the governing structures of the church. So what does that look like? Just br- very briefly. I know it might be a little bit off course, but this is important because if the governing structure is incorrect, then they're not going to be able to address the issues like they should. Isn't that true? Absolutely. And, and as a matter of fact, I, I think governance is, is one of the largest issues facing the church right now. Uh, because uh, governance is really just a, a more technical word for the, the more familiar term of leadership. And so if, if a church does not have leaders who are selected uh, and trained and then, and then uh, given authority commensurate with their spiritual responsibility, 
uh, all in accordance with scripture, then then there's a there's a flaw there that that is a you know it's a miscalculation uh, from the start. And and the farther the church goes, the more off course it'll be. And so to be specific, you know, First uh, Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one give us the qualifications to to choose elders uh, for for governance and leadership of the church. There's also a role to be played by by the pastor. There's a role to be played by the congregation, but but fundamental to that is is a core group of godly leaders who meet those qualifications. And when you have that in place, then you 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 should uh, under under ordinary circumstances have a group of folks who are uh, wise and they look to Scripture for their guidance. And that, that allows you to really address any issue that comes up, including the issue of sexual abuse. So let's say a church has the proper governing structure, and they hear there's an incredible allegation of abuse brought to them. What's the first thing that they should do? Well, so we, we recommend a, a four-step plan for responding to reported or suspected abuse. Step one is, is simply to investigate. And then the main purpose of, the, of an investigation is to determine, is there something here that merits further consideration? And, you know, quite often the answer to that question will be no. There, there's, you know, nothing, there, there's been a misunderstanding, but there, there's no conduct that is, is contrary to the law or what's appropriate in a, in a biblical setting. Uh, upon determining what, that there is something uh, that need that needs additional attention, um, then it, that begins an analysis, uh, which is step two of determining whether to report the matter. And you know, it's it's very important to to recognize the spheres of authority. Mm-hmm. A church operates in a spiritual sphere of authority, but it also operates uh, in a temporal or the civil realm. Mm-hmm. And so, there may be a matter that has spiritual implications. Uh, certainly leadership in the church has spiritual implications, protecting uh, children, women, really anybody in the church from abuse, that has spiritual implications. But when the conduct uh, crosses the line and violates the rules of the civil authorities, then that implicates that realm of authority, and godly church leaders should operate in submission not only to the spiritual authority, but also to the civil authority. And so, so you begin with step one, which is to investigate. Then you move to step two, and in appropriate circumstances, you report it to the authority. Because a, a you know a criminal act of sexual abuse, that's not a not a church governance issue or or a church polity issue uh, uh, solely, uh, or even a church operations type issue. That's a criminal matter that operates within the civil realm of authority. Once you determine that a report is necessary, step three is to cooperate. Okay. And that means that you you tell the truth. You don't work toward cover-up. You work toward uh, dealing with the uh, bringing the truth out, protecting the victims, uh, and even protecting the accused in, a, in an appropriate way. And then once all the dust from steps one, two, and three uh, begin to settle, that's that's really when you can minister most effectively. And I'm talking a very compressed time frame here, but you investigate, and if appropriate, you report, and once you've reported, you cooperate, and then you minister. And I, I think one of the problems that 
churches have, and it's in my experience of, of advising churches on this, it usually comes from a, a good place of wanting to minister to people, um, but they, they will skip to that ministry step and they jump over, you know, the investigate, report, and cooperate steps. And in the process, they're violating lines of authority that God himself has ordained, yeah. uh, which we see in Romans 13 in particular. Well, I'm going to give you a lawyer answer, and the, and the answer is it depends, okay? As a practical matter, it's always going to be somebody in church leadership, whether it's the pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a, a hall monitor, you know, who's, who's going to be the first recipient of the information. And so it's important that you have a designated person within the church Maybe not in a in a formal way. People will naturally gravitate toward leaders with more responsibility, but that you inform the person in the church that needs to know that who will have some training or at least have the wisdom to deal with it. And then I think you decide whether to contact the church attorney or you decide whether to report it to law enforcement um, or whether to bring in a therapist or a social worker. And uh, and then. Uh, the, the last part of that would be to determine whether you need to report it to your insurance company. That's that's a little bit downstream. But essentially, um, there are circumstances where you want to bring in outside help. It really depends on the severity of the allegation or sometimes not on the severity of it, but the the uh, fervor with which the person even making a false allegation is pursuing it. And so if you get past the investigation step, sometimes you need counsel in that step, uh, or, or it not, doesn't necessarily have to be a lawyer, but somebody who can come in and, and ask the right questions. Um, but most assuredly, if you're making a report to law enforcement or social services, uh, I think it's a good idea to have an attorney to help you from that point. Because uh, things people can say things that are well-meaning, but they can cause more harm than good. Uh, you know, trying to trying to help a, a, a suspected victim, um, and and actually causing more harm, or it, it just there needs to be order brought to the process at that point. Brian, the next step is to report, and it's clear that the First Amendment gives us protections in the church: uh, First Amendment freedom of religion to worship, but it doesn't give the protection to churches to cover up something where there's clearly um, criminal activity. So churches. And what you're saying is they have a duty. What I'm hearing from you is that they have a duty to report to the civil authorities if there are credible uh, accusations of abuse in that in that church. Um, and then the cooperation. They're, you're encouraging them to cooperate with the local authorities in further investigation. Brian Schutte, appreciate your uh, joining us on the Commonwealth Matters. Do you have a, a final word? We've got 30 seconds. Any words of encouragement to pastors or churches when dealing with this difficult issue? It's serious when these things happen, but knowing whether they, there's been an actual instance of abuse is, is sometimes difficult. And so I encourage you as pastors to lean on those advisors you've surrounded yourselves with, lean on other pastors in your community, in appropriate cases, um, engage somebody that can really help you with it, that's familiar with the system and the process. 